the most prophesied event in the Bible comes to the forefront here in Revelation chapter 19. And I want to take some time this morning, if you will, with me to to get some background, some background information that will lead us up to the point of Revelation 19.11 in which the Lord Jesus Christ is seen to come again. The the first part, uh, the, the lion's share of what I want to talk to you about this morning is really going to be that background information. It's going to be that, that introduction to the sermon, if you will. We know that most of the book of Revelation is given to describing the events on earth um, in the yet future time uh, called the tribulation and great tribulation. It is a time of seven years of the wrath of God. Seven years of the wrath of God being poured out, wave after wave of of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth in the yet future time. And it culminates, that tribulation time, that future time of wrath culminates in chapter 17. And in chapter 17, we read of the future utter collapse of the world religious system. That's in chapter 17. In chapter 18, we read of the utter collapse of the entire world political, economic, and social system. In other words, what I want to say to you is there is a coming utter collapse, the coming utter collapse and despair and destitution and destruction of all world systems following that or in line with that great Uh, seven years of pouring out of the wrath of God. So much so that the Bible says in one day, chapter 18, verse 8, in fact, in one hour, chapter 18, verse 17, all of the world's systems will come to a crashing halt. One of the things that has happened to us in these last couple of years is an understanding that it doesn't take long for change to happen. We have seen things radically change in our world, and and most of us are really, I for one, taken by surprise at how quickly things can change. But I'll tell you what, when we read here in chapter 18, verses 8, and chapter 18, verse 17, that in one day, in fact, in one hour, we find the utter collapse, the utter destruction of every world system, we now have some sort of file to understand that, some sort of category in which we can understand that. Then after chapter 17 and chapter 18, suddenly in the book of Revelation, our attention shifts from earth. It had been on earth from chapter 4, really, all the way through the end of chapter 18. Our, Our attention really is on earth. But now in chapter 19, our attention shifts from earth to heaven. And it's at that point, in the beginning of chapter 19, when we encounter heaven rejoicing. Heaven rejoicing. After the utter absolute collapse of the world's religious, economic, social, political system, in chapter 19, we are led into heaven and we hear heaven rejoicing. In Revelation 19, we hear the loud voice in heaven crying out. And what are they saying? Verse 19, chapter uh, 19, verse 1, they are saying, Hallelujah. In other words, in response to this catastrophic collapse, 
we're told that there is this loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, and one word punctuates their song. It's repeated four times here in this chapter, hallelujah. The word you're familiar with, it simply means praise the Lord. They are praising the Lord. There is this loud voice of rejoicing, praising the Lord in heaven. Now, you might think that the word hallelujah is a fairly normal word in the Bible, but it's actually not. In fact, the word is only used four times in the entire New Testament. The word hallelujah is only used four times in the entire New Testament, and all four of those times happen to be here in Revelation chapter 4. That word is, is a transliteration it's a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word, alleluia. It's used in Psalm 104, verse 35, and here's what it says. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul, hallelujah, or praise the Lord. And that verse, Psalm 104, 35, gives us a picture of, that is often used in conjunction with the use of the word Hallelujah. In other words, almost always this word, when it's used in the Bible, is used in conjunction with the judgment of God. This word is almost always used in conjunction with the judgment of God. And that's how it's used here in Revelation chapter 19. It is a word that is specifically tied to the judgment of God. It is a word that serves as a fitting response of the righteous to the pouring out of the judgment of God. And what we have here in Revelation 19 are, is the praise of the heavenly masses focusing on the just retribution of God. Throughout Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 18, God has been justly meting out his punishment on a sinful world. And for this, the heavenly masses praise the Lord. Now, you might wonder, who is this heavenly choir speaking here? This heavenly choir crying out, we would say, singing out. There's a similar one mentioned back in chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, and that's consisting there of tribulation saints, those who became believers during the time of the tribulation and who were actually martyred because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that they're representative from every nation on earth. Now, the identity of this choir in Revelation chapter 19 is not specified. It may be just angelic hosts. It may be the multitude of tribulation saints or perhaps a combination of the two. They're singing out in response to the judgment of God being poured out upon the earth. Now, I want to draw your attention this morning in this ongoing introduction to Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. And let me pick it up here, verse 6 of chapter 19. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. This is just repeating verse 1. The voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. Why? For the marriage, underline this phrase, the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. 
it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited, now underline this phrase, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In verse 7, it's the marriage of the Lamb. And now in verse 9, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy or of this prophecy. Now, as we pick up here in chapter 19, we hear in verse 6 and 7, this grand declaration. There is a grand declaration. What is that? About the marriage of the Lamb. But you'll notice, as I pointed out to you in verse 7, that grand declaration of the marriage of the Lamb turns into a gracious invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I want to take time to explain that this morning. A few weeks ago, we took some time to describe the basic nature of marriage in the Jewish culture. Now, it consisted basically of three parts. And I'm just talking very generally here. We might say the betrothal. The first part would be the betrothal. The marriage had been arranged by the families of the prospective bride and groom while they were still young. There was that sort of marriage arrangement. But that marriage arrangement would ultimately be ratified when the children got older by this betrothal period. It was a formally, formally ratified contract, a formally ratified arrangement that was validated by the payment of the bride price. That's what will begin that betrothal period. And that could go on for some time. The groom then would be preparing a place for his betrothed in his father's house. Okay? And it could take years of preparation before the actual ceremony, the actual marriage ceremony. But then, so you go from the betrothal to what we would call the, 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 the presentation period. When everything was right, when everything in the father's house was ready, the father would say to the groom, it's time. And the groom would launch out, there, there would be this presentation of festivities depending on the the, the economic ability of the families, there, there would be this week or longer festivities, feasting and whatnot, leading up to the actual marriage ceremony. But here's what would happen. So you got betrothal, the presentation. What would happen is, only known to the father, right? The father would say to the groom, now go. And the groom would say, all right, you betcha. And he would go at, I don't know if he said you betcha, but he would say, okay, I'm ready to go. He would go with his groomsmen, go to the house of his bride and her, you know, attendants, and he would get them and take them to his home, to his father's home, in order for the marriage ceremony to take place where there will be the exchange of vows and the marriage feast, the marriage supper. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, I'm telling you this because the Bible uses the figure of marriage to describe the relationship of the Lord Jesus to his church. For instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul said, I feel a divine jealousy for you since 
I betrothed you to one husband in order to present you, betrothal, presentation, ceremony, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. That chapter 5, when he said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And Jesus no doubt had this in mind when he said, in my father's house are what? Many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to what? Prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will certainly come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus spoke of this very thing. The groom going to get the bride in order to bring her to himself in order for the marriage supper to take place. The marriage ceremony and ultimately the marriage supper to take place. In this imagery, friends, the rapture of the church marks the time when the groom goes to take his bride to his father's house. The catching away of the church as we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Well, by the time we get to Revelation 19, the church is already in the Father's house. She has already been caught away with, to be with the Lord in the air. She's been presented pure and spotless to the Lord. In other words, the imputed righteousness of Christ has become manifest in perfect likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, just like John told us in 1 John 3, 2, when we see him, we will be like him, right? So during the time of the pouring out of the wrath of God on earth, the saints are in heaven, I think probably standing before the Bema seat judgment of God, and now that has all completed, that has all been concluded, in Revelation 19, we hear the resounding voice of the multitude in heaven praising God. Why? Because now it's time for the marriage of the Lamb. Moreover, it's time for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the Bible says that this supper, that, 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 is, that, 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 that is in this supper that the church is joined by invited guests, which we just read about. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 8, 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. It's that time of which Jesus spoke when he said during, the Lord's, during that first observance of the Lord's Supper, what did he say? I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, what did he say? I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Isaiah prophesied of this. He said in Isaiah 25, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tear from tears from all the faces." It's what Isaiah was speaking of in Isaiah 25. And now we finally come to the text. Revelation 19 
verse 11. With all of that introduction, now we read in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened. Now just stop right there. See how far we're going to get? I saw heaven open. The last time we read about that in the book of Revelation was in chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. What did that reveal? That revealed the majestic, a majestic throne that was firmly set in heaven, firmly fixed in heaven. And moreover, one who was seated on that throne in splendor and glory. But now, in chapter 19, verse 11, when heaven is opened again, there's no mention of a throne. But rather a white horse and one who is seated on the white horse. Let me take a moment to say this. Following the chaos and the collapse of the earthly kingdoms of the world, we look to the only place we could look. We look to heaven. Having heard of the grand declaration of the marriage of the Lamb and the gracious invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, we have an opportunity, my friends, to witness the prophetic prediction of one coming from heaven to earth. You see, when we looked at Revelation 4.1, we said, don't forget that there is a throne firmly fixed in heaven, immovable. Because what happens in our day and age, as we think, see things going on before us, we can forget that God is absolutely seated on his throne in heaven and that he's in control. And now we're coming back following this, this epic, chaotic collapse of everything we look to heaven and we see one coming from heaven to earth. And that's exactly what we're going to give our attention to this morning. The prophetic revelation of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you might be one of those confused by the chaos taking place in our world right now. Maybe you've thought that things will just get increasingly better. Maybe that's what your thought has been. Hey, everything's just going to get better and better. But instead, you're struck by the reality that things are actually getting worse. And they Now, listen. Things will get better, to be sure. But things on earth have to get far worse, far, far worse before they will get better. And it's not the church that's going to make things better. And it's not politics that's going to make things better. And it's not medicine it's going to make things better. What we need is a glimpse into heaven this morning. And praise the Lord, we have such a glimpse. John saw heaven opened. And we would all do well to pay attention to what he saw. And you know what he saw? He saw the Lord Jesus Christ coming again. And so with that in mind, I want to direct your attention to our text this morning. And I want, you, I want us to be reminded this morning of four truths regarding the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Four truths regarding the second coming of Christ. What are they? Number one, he will come in marvelous victory. We'll see that here in verse 11. He will come in marvelous victory. Number two, we'll see in verse 12, he will come in absolute authority. Verse 12 through the first part of verse 13, he'll come in absolute authority. 
And then the end of verse 13 through really the end of verse 15, he will come in, unmis- uh, uh, he will come in unmistakable deity. Unmistakable deity. Then verses 14 through 16 together, he will come in perfect majesty. He will come. John saw the Lord Jesus Christ coming from heaven in marvelous victory, absolute authority, unmistakable deity, and perfect majesty. Let's read the text. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, give us eyes to see, minds to comprehend, ears to hear, hearts to receive, and do what only you can do by your grace and for your glory. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. I want to show you, first of all, this Jesus coming in marvelous victory. Marvelous. The first thing that we're drawn to here is this white horse. I think it's interesting because the one who first came to Jerusalem riding the foal of a donkey will one day come on a white horse. Now that's the way that the Roman generals would come back after a successful war. They would be seated on a white stallion as they were paraded through the city in celebration of their victory. Now you need to understand here that John is given the end right here at the beginning. What I mean is that there's no doubt about his victory. He's not coming to earn victory. He's coming in victory. He is already victorious. Now, let me just ask a question. Who is coming victoriously? Who is coming in marvelous victory? Well, the Bible says that the one sitting, there is one sitting on it, on the white horse, is called faithful and true. If you've read the book of Revelation, especially verse chapter 6 through, through uh, uh, 17, you know that this is a far cry from the world rulers, and more specifically from the world ruler at that time called Antichrist. He is a wicked deceiver, chapter 12, verse 9, and chapter 18, verse 23. But this one is called faithful and true. It's the same one who in chapter 3, verse 14, is called the faithful and true witness. Witness. Why? Because he is faithful to all of his promises. He is true to all of his words because the scripture says, you, O God, have exalted above all things your name and your word, Psalm 138, 2. He doesn't forget. He isn't somehow prevented from doing what he says he will do. In fact, the Bible says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. I remember the story of one 
dear old saint who was on her deathbed. And as she stood there, she was, as she laid there, she was rejoicing about her, her heavenly home. She was rejoicing about the, the heavenly assurance that she had in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who were standing by her thought maybe she was being a little bit arrogant. Maybe she was being a little bit overconfident. I mean, what if she was making a mistake? And they tried to get her to stop and to re-examine what she was saying. And she said this, if I should awaken before in eternity to find myself lost, the Lord would lose more than I would. For all that I could lose would be my immortal soul, but he would have lost his good name. You see, the, the assurance, the, the, the heavenly assurance of each believer is fully founded in the faithfulness, in the genuineness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This one who is coming again seated on a white horse is unlike any other conqueror. He is unlike any other warrior. He is unlike any other ruler. That's what makes his victory so marvelous because he's simply doing what he said he would do. He's being true to his own word. Who is coming? The faithful and true one. Why is he coming? Why is he coming in marvelous victory? Well, the Bible says he's coming in righteousness. He judges and makes war. Brothers and sisters here, there's no talk of a meek and mild Jesus. There's no silent night. There's no little Lord Jesus laying down his sweet head. He comes in perfect righteousness and judges in accord with his perfect righteousness. In fact, he makes war in accord with his perfect righteousness. He is not coming to make friends and influence people. The psalmist saw this when he said, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You might want to know what this warring judgment looks like. Well, if you want to know, just let your eyes go down to verses 17 through 21. And in verses 17 through 21, you'll find there a final battle. It's taking place on the plain of Megiddo. It's known as the battle of Armageddon. It is there that a demonic influence will lead the kings of the earth to gather together in order to plot against and fight against the return of the king. And in Revelation 16, the Antichrist himself is said to lead that charge against the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Zechariah chapter 14 that his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And in Revelation 19, we learn that he will defeat the forces of evil and he will cast the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire. And then he will bind Satan and will set up his kingdom for 1,000 years. And it will be there and then that the Lord Jesus Christ will, quote, tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty and he will do so in perfect righteousness and perfect justice because he is faithful and true. He's going to come in marvelous victory. Before he even comes, he is said to be victorious. Not only will he come in marvelous victory, but he will come in absolute authority. And, and you know that just by looking, first of all, at his eyes. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. They are piercing. They're not missing anything. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He has that piercing vision to be able to see whatever it is he needs to see, to see right through things, to the reality about it. That's how his judgment is just, because he doesn't miss anything. 
You know, we, we might think of a judge today possibly making a wrong judgment. Why? Because they don't know all the facts. Why? Because they can't see all the truth. But that's not how it is with this conquering king. With this almighty judge, his eyes are flaming like a flame of fire. And, and you know that he's going to come in absolute authority, not only by looking at his eyes, but just look at his head for a moment. Look what it says. On his head are many diadems. The one who was despised and rejected of men, the one who was a man of sorrow and grief, upon whose head was placed a crown of thorns, comes again in absolute authority with many crowns on his head. He once bore the crown of thorns, suggesting that he was bearing the curse, but now he bears many crowns of, of his absolute authority. That is to say, he is crowned everywhere, all the time. There is no place ever in which he is not perfectly reigning. His absolute authority. You look at his eyes and you look at his head. Well, look at his name. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. A name no one knows but himself. Now that hasn't stopped men from spilling unnecessary ink in their little commentaries and offering their little scholarly insight as to what this name might be. Here's my answer. No one knows but himself. And that speaks of authority. Why? Because he doesn't have to give an account to anyone. He doesn't have to show his ID. He doesn't have to be verified he doesn't have to identify himself. He is self-sufficient and his own name that he knows alone it serves to remind us of his absolute authority. You look at his eyes, you look at his head, you look at his name, and then look at his robe. Whoa, verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped, probably better, splattered in blood. His glorious robe is stained with blood. Now, a lot of folks have said different things about this, what that suggests. Some have said it's, it's his own blood. I don't think that can be the understanding of this text because I think what we see here is a fulfillment of what we read in Isaiah 63. What do we read? Listen. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. To which the question comes, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden, he says, the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was, able, was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. In other words, I believe it is a reference to the past judgment of this one. He is the angel of death that we read about in Exodus. He is the one who has always meted out the judgment of God. And his absolute authority is reflected by, the, by his flaming eyes, his many crowns, his unidentified name, and his blood-spattered robe suggesting his victory and judgment over his enemies. This is not a meek and mild Jesus over whom you can have control. This is a conquering king who will come in marvelous victory, who will come in absolute authority. Thirdly, 
he will come in unmistakable deity. I love this. Just look at the, the beginning, the end of, sorry, of verse 13. And the name. <laughs> Let me just stop there. The name of this returning king is emphasized throughout this text. You'll see three times specified his name, and one time it said he is called. Find three specified names. The one which no one knows, the word of God here, and then later at the end of our text, the king of kings and lord of lords. The name. We sing the song, there's something about that name. We sing... Uh, uh, blessed be the name. We sing of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I read a poet who said, I, I know a soul that is steeped in sin that no man's art can cure, but I know a name, a name, a name that can make that soul all pure. I know a life that is lost to God, bound down by, bound down by things of earth, but I know a name, a name, a name that can bring that soul new birth. I know of lands that are sunk in shame, of hearts that faint and tire, but I know a name, a name, a name that can set those lands on fire. Here is another name given to this returning king, and here he is called the Word of God. Now you understand that this is an especially meaningful term for John. He began his gospel most uniquely under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he said, in the beginning was the Word and the word was with God, and the word was God. My friends, listen to me. He will come in unmistakable deity. In other words, every eye will see him, dear friends, and there will be no doubt about this coming king, for he is the very word of God himself, the perfect expression of God himself. According to what we read this morning in Hebrews 1, the exact representation of his nature, Colossians 1.15 the visible expression of the invisible God. He is the one who spoke to bring creation into being. He is the one who by his very word upholds and sustains everything that is, even his own enemies. He will come and there will be no mistaking who the coming king is. That's the very word of God himself. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ coming in unmistakable deity. But then I want you to notice fourthly, in verses 14 through 16, that he will come in perfect majesty. He will come in perfect majesty. And I just want you to see how the majesty of this returning king is highlighted. It's highlighted, first of all, by noting that he will come with attending armies. Do you know that this is the very day of which Enoch himself spoke, as we read in Jude chapter 14, when, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy angels? It's the very day, my friends, that Zechariah spoke of. In Zechariah 14, verse 5, Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. He says there, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, verse 14, were following him on white horses. There are the attending armies. To which you might ask the question, who are they? Well, I think what we are witnessing here is the return of his church. I believe this is the return of the church together with the tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints resurrected according to Daniel chapter 12. According to Matthew chapter 25, there have got to be the attending angels, the angelic hosts that are joining him. So we have angels and tribulation saints. We have the Old Testament saints and we have the church gathered together. I fully expect, dear ones, that 
the raptured believers will be together with Jesus Christ following the time of tribulation on the earth. That's us in verse 14. Why? Well, the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 3 verse 4, when he appears, we shall appear with him in his glory. This army is robed in white, suggesting victory, purity, and righteousness. Furthermore, in chapter 19 verse 8, it's spoken of as the righteous deeds of the saints. I think reflecting the results of the Bema Seat judgment. And together, the attending armies of this one riding on a white horse, joined together by those riding on white horse, arrayed in fine white linen, pure, righteous, victorious, coming together with him as a majestic retinue of the king. Not only does he come with attending armies, but you'll notice... He comes with a sharp sword. Verse 15. He comes with a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. A sharp sword. It's said to be in his mouth. This is most evidently a picture here. I think it's a figure of speech speaking of the power of his word. Which is exactly what the writer of Hebrews said in Verse 411, he said, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Why? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than what? Any two-edged sword. And this is spoken of, this event, my friends, and I don't want to take time to do it, but I just want to highlight this for you. This very event, what we read here in verse 15, is spoken of throughout the scriptures. Let me just give you a, a sampling. Listen to Isaiah 66. Behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. You read the same thing in Ezekiel 39.1, Ezekiel 39.17, Joel chapter 3 verse 13, Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 through 40. And even in, we'll look, as we've looked already at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, when he comes in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Simply saying this, he comes indeed to rule with great majesty and splendor. And it is by his word that he will rule and reign. What do I mean? He will come... With, an attending, with attending armies, and he will come with a sharp sword, which will bring his judgment. And according to verse 21 of chapter 19, his very judgment will result in the death of many. To be reserved, we learn later, for eternal judgment. In other words, let me say it this way. He who came the first time in order to propitiate the wrath of God comes the second time to administrate the wrath of God. He who came the first time to propitiate the wrath of God comes the second time to administrate the wrath of God on all of his enemies. His, he will come in perfect majesty, suggested by the attending armies, suggested by the powerful and authoritative word of judgment that comes out of his mouth. There's, there's nobody speaking against him. Nobody has a, oh, but I'm sorry, you didn't understand, or let me explain myself. There's just complete and utter silence before the Lord of lords. In fact, that leads us to, the, to, the, to understand that 
His, he is, comes in perfect majesty with a name written on his robe. Just to finish off the vision of the majesty of this one who returns, a third name is revealed. And it is written on his robe and it stretches down over his chest, going down to his thigh. Why? Because there's no mistaking. There's no mistaking. This is exactly what John saw. <clears throat> the name is the name which is above every name. What is that? King of kings and Lord of lords. It is his absolute rule and terrific majesty. And that's how he will come, my brothers and sisters. No questioning his right. No questioning his might. No doubting his identity. No effort to quell any uprising as if he has to exhaust anything from himself, whatever. There will just be outright rule because he comes in perfect and absolute majesty. That's what we see when heaven is opened. That's why our eyes are directed this morning in the midst of a day and age where we, there are many things that we don't know, many things we don't understand. He wants us to remember this. He wants you to remember this today, that there is one coming in marvelous victory. There is one coming in absolute authority. There is one coming in unmistakable deity. And there is one coming in perfect majesty. Now, an exposition or any study in a text like this is not meant to puff up our eschatological head with knowledge uh, for the sake of discussion. It works for the sake of debate. It's aimed at your heart. So I say to you today, take heart, my friends. When you're locked in the midst of struggle with temptation, take heart. And remember the return of the king. Can you imagine in the moment that you're struck and you're, you're wrestling, you're struggling with that temptation and you just think about the attending armies of the Lord one day following Jesus back in his victory march. When you find yourself in the midst of despair, take heart and remember the return of the king. In the midst of your sorrow and joy, remember the return of the king, dear saints. When the world is, is going nuts and you can't understand how it is possible for people to believe the lunacy that's taking place around them, remember the truth of the return of the king. And perhaps you're here this morning, but you're in hard-hearted rebellion. You've come with a stiff neck, a hard heart. For some of you, you're hearing these words and, and, and you're finding that heart beginning to melt. You're finding that neck beginning to bow under the weight of this truth because it is you that the Lord is drawing right now. You, you feel your heart melting at the revelation of the majesty of Christ coming again. Your heart is melting because the Lord is drawing you to repent. He's drawing you to repent. Repent of your sin. And to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you today that that's exactly what you should do. In this very moment, you should turn. Turn from your unbelief. And just trust Jesus Christ. Trust that He really is God. That He is really the Savior and the soon coming King. The soon coming Judge. Confess your sin 
and your sinfulness to him, and you will find in him not a judge, but you will find a savior. And if you're still in rebellion, then this text will not serve to soften your heart, but it will serve to harden, to make you more angry, to make you want to sin more. I'll go out and show him. You'll be like those, those dumb armies in Psalm 2. Come on, let's gather together against the Lord and his anointed. You dummies, you can't do that. If you want to continue in your hard-hearted rebellion, you'll find your heart hardened still. And you'll still be condemned. You, you will still be condemned and lost in your sin. Why would you do that? But today is the day for you to return. Today is the day for you to repent. Today is the day for all of us to have soft, pliable hearts before the Lord. Because look at Him. Look at His victory. Look at this authority. Look at this deity. Look at His majesty. And dear friends, humble your hearts before that King today. Would you pray together with me?